What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 29. We're going to be doing some classic horror films to kickstart our like two and a half weeks of horror to finish up the month of October. Nothing but horror movies oh, for the rest of October. We're very excited about this. We're going to be doing The Exorcist, The Shining, Jaws, and The Thing. And we're very excited about this. This is, These are some of our favorite horror movies of all time. The Shining in general is one of my top 10 favorite movies. So I can't wait to talk about that. So this is going to be a great episode. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And before we get started, if you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share our podcast, either the YouTube channel or the audio versions on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. We're growing mostly word of mouth, so please spread the word. Share us with your movie friends, your family members, your friends. Tell them about this show. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the notification bell, and leave a comment. Leaving a five-star review really helps us get seen by new people, especially the written reviews. So if you can leave us a five-star review, I know every podcast asks that, but it's true. It really does help. And we also have a Patreon. If you want to help support us monthly, you will get unique perks like personalized videos, sneak peeks at episodes, and our top-tier patrons also get a monthly shout-out on the podcast, which we will do next episode. And beware, spoilers are abound. Let's start off with The Exorcist. Oh, man. Directed by William Friedkin in 1973. And Friedkin's a great director. He's known for films like The French Connection, 12 Angry Men. He's made a handful of some of the best movies ever. This film was based loosely on actual events and adapted from a novel of the same name. When young Reagan, played by Linda Blair, starts acting odd, levitating, speaking in tongues, her worried mother and movie star, Ellen Burstein, seeks medical help, only to hit a dead end. A local priest, played by Jason Miller, however, thinks the girl may be seized by the devil. The church sends an expert, Father Marin, played by Max von Sydow, to help with the difficult job. This is, I think, the scariest movie ever made. I've never seen a movie before that made me feel so fearful of something supernatural. Because it made it seem so realistic. Yeah, this is probably the most terrifying movie ever made. And especially when it was released. It's a cult classic, obviously, uh, released in 1973. But audiences were so shocked by what they saw on screen that there were reports of people fainting, vomiting in movie theaters. One woman reportedly uh, blamed the film for a miscarriage. Another woman fell down from passing out and broke her jaw and sued the studio for that too. So there was just this wild frenzy of people seeing this in theaters because, again, this is 1973. People had never seen anything like this in mainstream cinema. Yeah, we see images like this in every, every horror movie that we nowadays. It's a common thing, but this is very similar to the shower stabbing scene in Psycho where nothing like that had been ever seen before in cinemas. People had never experienced these kinds of images, these kinds of... Uh, horrific moments of uh, of gore and and fright and terror it was it was unexpected for for audiences yeah it was highly publicized uh led to medical journalists giving a psychiatric name for the craze associated with the the horror film titled cinematic neurosis so you could say that it definitely struck a chord with american audiences and global audiences and the ironic thing is warner brothers didn't think it was going to be a, a big hit it was a, an 11 million dollar budget but they Originally released it only on 30 theaters at first. Wow. And then eventually this word spread like crazy word of mouth. And it ended up making uh, $441 million, which in 1973, adjusted for inflation, is over a billion dollars. 
for a horror movie in 1973. This movie was such a sensation also because of the word of mouth, but it was a very popular property when that when the book, the novelization came out um, the year previous. It was the highest selling book of that entire year, and it spent seven. It spent an entire year atop the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Get Out because Get Out was again like a four million dollar production. Um, no one really ever heard of Blumhouse Studios and. Jordan Peele, we kind of knew him from his sketch comedy shows and some other minor roles here and there. And then David Kaluuya, we never seen him before in a movie, really, besides we saw him in um, um, Black Mirror in an episode. Mm. Aside from that, this that was like a relatively low-expectation film, but then word of mouth drove that movie like crazy, and that movie ended up breaking like $250 million on a $4 million budget because of word of mouth, kind of like a craze with The Exorcist. Yeah, it's like people told... People told other people, you have to see this movie, you, you, you're not going to believe this. But also, The Exorcist taps into this very heavy themes of, is hell real? Are demons real? Is, is Satan real? And so, obviously, religion was stronger in American minds back then than it is now. But still, it helped. It, 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 the mystery of religion and, and evil and goodness is in spirituality is brought to light in this film like no other movie before it. And that's why I think it it, it impact it had such an impact it had. Yeah, because maybe for like a couple hours it kind of solved that mystery of like, is there an afterlife? Are there really demons? Is there a hell? Because this is truly of all the movies you'll ever watch, if you if you sit down, shut your phone off, watch this movie, it's truly one of the most powerful two hours of ex- of escapism you'll ever have watching a movie. Dude, even even nowadays, if I watch this movie, I'll be like, oh, is hell a real thing? It's terrifying. Are demons real? It's, it's horrifying. And it's because Freakin did such a great job with it, and he really made it feel like a real story. Yeah, it's almost like a, like an emotional assault he puts on us. Of, of, mm. It's not a movie you go into wanting to enjoy it. You don't go into this movie wanting to have a good time. You go into this movie... And you're, you got to have the expectations that you're going to be messed with. Your head is going to be scrambled eggs by the end of it. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the main theme of this movie is um, pure evil taking over pure innocence in the face of uh, the demon whose name is Pazuzu taking over Reagan's and possessing her. Yeah, so that's the name of the demon in the book, but they never bring up the name in the movie. Yeah. And, yeah, again, The Exorcist kind of satisfies, like you said, those curiosities of death, life, afterlife, and heaven and hell. It's one of the rare movies where every time I watch it, it still has a, a profound impact on me. And it still is bone-chilling every time you see it. Yeah, because like we said earlier, you see things in this movie that you've never seen before. Even today, you don't see movies like with scenes this shocking. For yeah. example, um, Reagan climbing down the stairs upside down with that like crazy spider crawl with blood coming out of her mouth. Reagan stabbing herself with the crucifix, uh, the shot of her head turning completely 180, 360 degrees. Like, what the hell? The levitation scene, the bed shaking scene, when her body's contorting. And one of my favorite scenes is the scene where Chris goes to check on the screaming Reagan. She runs into the bedroom, and then Reagan hits her onto the floor. And then Chris is about to get up, and then the furniture in the room starts moving. The door closes on its own, and then the dresser starts moving towards Chris, and she has to get out of the way. And you're like, oh, my God. And it's all practical, and 
it beats any kind of CGI that you do nowadays. It just nothing compares to actually seeing a dresser actually move on its own and attack a character. Yeah, this movie's almost 50 years old, and the special effects still holds up. We watched it the other day, and it's not a moment of that is is disbelievable. Versus if you watch a movie in like the early 2000s, that CGI does not even hold up at all in 2010. Yeah. But practical effects, we preach it all the time on this show. Practical effects, if done well, are the master of special effects. And I think that's one of the reasons why the scenes work so well. And also the way Freakin shot them is it's very simple. Lots of long takes, lots of wide shots. It's not a bunch of fast cuts and jump scares and loud music popping out at you. It's all very slow and methodical. And he shows you everything. He doesn't hide anything from you. And so that really brings you into each scene, showing the entire scene of a room, the entire environment of a room or the house really brings you into the moment and makes you feel like you're there. It, rather than a bunch of tight close-ups that are constantly cutting super fast and it brings you out of the moment, this makes you... Th the reason why you f it feels so real is because he shoots it. It's kind of like a documentary style. It's not handheld, but from far away, and you see everything in the frame, and that makes you feel like you're in the room with him. And also, Freakin' really focuses on character development in this film because, again, not a lot happens in the first, like, 30, 40 minutes of this film. Yeah, we follow Merrin in Iraq while he's... Uh, digging in the ruins, which is really interesting. And then we're basically in the day-to-day -day life of of Chris and her daughter, Reagan. And it seems like a very charmed life. She seems like a very precocious and, and uh, charming little girl. And everything seems fine until, you know, she begins to slowly act odd and, and things start happening. And obviously the Ouija board scene. And that's basically insinuates the moment where the demon decides and, and finds basically finds Reagan to possess is during the Ouija board scene. I actually I actually think that it's before that. So I think the Ouija board scene, it shows us how the demon came into contact with her, but it's not in that moment, I don't think, because she's been talking to Captain Howdy. And I think that... Oh, she, yeah, so Captain Howdy is her uh, yeah, imaginary friend. Yeah, who is actually Pazuzu communicating with her through the Ouija board. So I think that the beginning of the possession started before the film even starts. And they're actually... Very small, subtle hints to show that um, Reagan is beginning to be possessed by this demon before any of this happens. And the first clue is when Chris hears scratching in the attic of the house, but no one else hears the scratching. It sounds very violent and aggressive. And then she checks later and she doesn't find anything. And she thinks it's rats and, and asks yeah. her, her housekeeper to, to get rat traps. Yeah, exactly. And then also there's a, very, a scene very early on um, right after that is she goes into Reagan's room to check on the girl... Reagan's is fast asleep, but her room is freezing, and the and the window is open. And then Chris quickly closes the window, but it, it's it's a it's it's a foreshadow to eventually how the bedroom is later on the film during the exorcism where it's ice cold, and so it's showing that the temp the demon likes it cold, and so the room is already being um as as cold as possible for the demon. Also, very early on, in the basement is where. Reagan does her arts and crafts, and she makes, like, those little clay sculptures of animals and paintings and, and all sorts of stuff. And then she shows Chris this new bird she made. It's this really strange-looking orange bird with a yellow feather on it, and it's got a long beak, and the beak is, has black and white stripes on it. It seems very strange because it's very out. It's very different from anything else she has made. All of her other artwork is just very simple and childlike and kind of, like, very simple colors, but this one is so bright orange with a weird beak and everything and then uh about 10 minutes later it's revealed that that statue in the church has been desecrated and it has a very similar look to the to the bird that reagan made especially the beak 
with the appendages that are put onto that statue. And so the similarities between the Reagan's artwork with the bird and this, this desecrated statue tells us that she's actually the one who desecrated the statue. And also the Ouija board, I think, like you said, it, it shows us how she came into contact with the demon. And before any of this, I think that we're shown how the demon is actually released into the world through the excavation site that Father Mirren is, is a part of. It's in Iraq, and it's an archaeological site, and he's brought to this new tomb that has been uncovered. And he looks into this opening, and he pulls out that head statue of Pazuzu. And so I think that the dig site opening Pazuzu's tomb is what releases the demon into our world, and which is in which brings Father Marin to find that giant statue of Pazuzu in another area near the dig site. And so now that Pazuzu has been released by the dig site, it tries to, it's looking for uh, a host to possess, and that's where it comes into contact with Reagan through the Ouija board. And Reagan's played by Linda Blair, and this is a difficult role to cast because you need an 11, 12 year old girl in a very intense and terrifying role, especially again for the time, 1973. And how do you cast a girl in this kind of role without, without worrying about maybe psychologically damaging that girl? Because there are very intense and mature scenes in this film, and it's even worse inside the book. Yeah. And they held auditions for hundreds and thousands of girls, but Linda Blair walked in one day with an, without an appointment with her mother, and she just blew the filmmakers away and the producers away because she had this uh, sense of maturity about her when, when talking about the material, and even her mother was very mature about it, especially even the scene with the crucifix. And she gives a, an amazing performance, and again, a very physical performance with what she has to do while all the scenes where she's strapped down into the bed or even she's being evaluated by the doctor. She has a lot of sporadic and erratic movements. She even broke her, she fractured her spine during the film and this during uh, one of the scenes in her bed when she's just constantly flailing up and down and the bed shaking at the same time. Oh, I so, thought that was a prop. So she put a lot, of, a lot of effort into this role for a 12-year-old and she knocked this role out of the park. She's the best part of the movie. Yeah, and she says such horrible things and I'm sure... Most young women, it would have been difficult for them to do, to, to do that. But also, one of the strengths of this movie and what makes her possession so horrifying is her voice. And her voice was dubbed by an older actress. And Mercedes McCambridge, who is an Oscar winner. Yeah. And then hearing that voice come out of that little girl, I think is one of the most disturbing aspects of the film because it's just frightening and shocking. And the growling and the... the the, the horrible sounds that this creature makes through her is, is horrible. Yeah, Mercedes is really committed to the voice acting in this film because she was a sober alcoholic, but she gave up her sobriety to start drinking whiskey again. She swallowed raw eggs and would chain smoke cigarettes to create this nasty, raspy, deep, animalistic, demonic voice. And tragically... Um, this film, people think, is cursed. You know, again, we talked about what happened in theaters when people saw this, and also it affected people outside of the film, and even some of the actors in the film. For example, Mercedes McCambridge's uh, son cr uh, committed a horrible crime of murder-suicide on his entire family. Wow. And this film also has an actor in it who ended up being a serial killer. He's a doctor in one of the hospital scenes with Reagan when she's going for the spinal tap. So his name is Paul Bateson, and he actually did that for a living uh, with the x-ray machines. And 
it ended up coming out a couple years after the film that he got caught uh, after he killed somebody because he lured a man back into his home and then beat him to death with a frying pan or cast iron skillet. But they eventually linked to at, linked at least six murders to this man, Paul Bateson. And it's just, again, is this film cursed? There's more to it. Nine members of the cast and crew died during the production and editing of this film for various reasons. Also, the entire set of the house, of Reagan and Chris's house, caught on fire. The entire thing burned down. They had to rebuild it in the middle of production. And then also, this film had a premiere in Rome. And the, the cinema where it premiered was located between two churches. And then on the night of the premiere of the film, one of the crosses atop the church was struck with lightning. Hey, man. Crazy. It's, it's pretty nuts. They, it seems like a lot of cursed coincidences to me. Yeah, Friedkin even, even had uh, a priest come in to perform an exorcism on the house set after they rebuilt it. And so... Like you said, you don't see anything really horrific until about 40, 45 minutes in because they treat these strange occurrences with Reagan as psychological disorders, which leads Chris to taking her to every doctor she can find. Yeah, this film is kind of ironically about how the medical world views possession and also uh, psychiatric mental illnesses. And you'll see with all the doctors in this film that they're very overly confident, even one of the doctors... Her first doctor um, has a very, like, overly arrogant body language. He constantly has, like, his hands over behind his head, leaning back, talking like he knows everything about what's wrong with Reagan. He's like, yeah, I'll just give her some Ritalin and it'll and be fine. And the funny thing about prescribing Ritalin is they don't e- they, he even says, we don't know why it works, but it seems to work. So even he doesn't know why things work in the medical world. And throughout the whole film, Chris... Reagan's mother takes her to see, like she says, every freaking doctor there is. Yeah. And they, no one knows what's wrong with her. And there's even that really intense scene where she's finally breaking down and she's in a room full of like 15 doctors and they all have no answers for her. They have no idea what's wrong with her and they keep prescribing more intense therapy and treatments after, each, after another. And the operations are really intense. Like that spinal tap scene with the blood squirting out of the instrument gets me every time. It's it terrifying. makes me squirm. And then the, the MRI scan... Back then, it was like these crazy machines, and they were so loud and imposing and scary looking. And it, it's just disturbing having to see this innocent little girl have to go through all this. It's, I mean, it, it's traumatic. And and again, it becomes evident that the doctors have no idea what's wrong with Reagan, and they eventually kind of prescribe or suggest exorcism to Chris as like a sort of a last resort. But at the same time, they're demeaning the practice at the same time. So they're they're talking about exorcism, how it's really just kind of a a way to trick somebody's mind into thinking that it will cure them because they think the possession is completely fake. Which yeah, like you, a placebo. Yeah, yeah, which you understand why they would think that because it's exorcism. It's it's not, you know... It's because of their lack of understanding of spirituality and faith, so that's why they're unable to understand this. And even um, Father Karras doesn't doesn't believe it at first. Even the, And even Chris, she's an anti-religious person. She yeah. even becomes upset when she finds the crucifix in uh, uh, Reagan's bedroom. Which is why I think Reagan is the one who was eventually possessed by the demon. Also, Yes, because of the Ouija board, but demons look for people who are weak in spiritual beliefs and also who are in weakened states emotionally and personally. And so Reagan's father is absent, doesn't care about her, didn't call her on her birthday. And so Reagan is uh, is dealing with uh, dealing with trauma in her life and despair. And so 
the demon takes advantage of that, and that's why he's able to um, possess her so quickly. Yeah, and her privilege and charmed life also enables her defenses to be down from something like this, for sure. And also, it's important to realize that, you know, Reagan isn't really the target of the demon. He, Reagan's the vessel to the real target, and the real target of the demon is Father Karras, played by Jason Miller. And I think this was Jason Miller's first film role, and he's fantastic in this movie. He really is. He got an Oscar nomination. He plays Dr. Karras, who's a father, and he's very highly educated from Harvard, John Hopkins, Georgetown University. He's a, He could be, as Uncle mentions, a very successful psychiatrist. He should be living in a penthouse, his, his uncle tells him, but he chose the life of a priest. And um, he looks like a boxer, but he himself is also a troubled man, you know, we often see our spiritual leaders or our, our religious and spiritual leader, leaders are projected as kind of perfect people without fault to us. But we look at Father Karras, and I'm sure every priest is like this. They have faults. You know, Karras has a bit of a drinking problem. He has a, a troubled relationship with his mother who's on her way out and seems to be breaking down mentally. He's having trouble with his faith. He doesn't want to do this work anymore, being a psychologist for the church. And also he even mentions to his friend that he thinks he's losing his faith. So he's in a, in a moment of despair in his life. So he's an ultimate target for the demon also because of his age and his health. And there are several clues that lead to the conclusion that Karras is actually the demon's main target. Just like Reagan, Father Karras has a, is weakened in his state of spirituality. He's very vulnerable to possession. He sees a flash of the demon's image in that dream he has about his mother. It's a nightmare. He, when Father Karras first interacts with Reagan, the demon goes, what an excellent day for an exorcism. And Father Karras responds, you would like that. And the demon says immensely because the demon says it would bring us together. And Father Karras thinks you and Reagan, but really the demon says you and us because the demon's talking about the demon and Karras. Just how I mentioned there was a flash of the demon in Father Karras' dream. There's actually several sh flashes of the demon throughout the first act of the film. Freakin used this very subtle subliminal imagery of the demon. Little flash cuts and quick cuts of the demon's image multiple times throughout the film. And so you see the, the face of the demon when Regan is first in the hospital. There's just a quick flash of the demon's face. And then the flash of the demon in Father Karras' dream. And then also when Chris is in the kitchen, she's going to Reagan's room. There's a flash of the demon's face atop the stove top. And then when Chris enters Reagan's bedroom, she opens the door. Right before she opens it, the, there's an image of the face of the statue of the demon that flashes on the screen in the darkness. And then at the end of that scene, Chris exits Reagan's room. And just to the left of the door in the darkness of the bedroom, you can actually see the entire statue of the demon standing right there in the darkness. So he uses subliminal imagery, just like David Fincher uses in, in Fight Club and, and other filmmakers have used to to terrorize us subconsciously. And just to go back on Father Karras for a second, there's this really powerful scene, which is a strong metaphor for the entire film that you can really easily miss if you're not really paying attention. It's uh, after his mother is sent to basically a psych psychiatric ward by um, her brother, his uncle, he goes to see his mother in the hospital, and we just see rows and rows of elderly people who are highly medicated, and they themselves are possessed, like instead of with a demon, by their dysfunctional minds, and they're possessed by medication instead of a demon. His mother is strapped down to a bed 
just like Reagan's about to be. So it's kind of like a metaphor for possession in real life that humans possess themselves with either medication or they're possessed by their own psychiatric mental illnesses. Yeah, that's a great point. And then the guilt of his mother being in a mental hospital is also one of the main points of attack that the demon uses to get through to Father Kairos to break him down. Because she dies alone without him there. Exactly, yeah. So it's the tragedy of his life. He holds intense guilt for letting that happen. So Kairos is asked by Chris very emotionally to come look at her daughter because, again, she's exhausted every kind of medical doctor she can to try to figure out what's wrong with her daughter. And her last resort is exorcism. And Karis is very hesitant to accept this this job or this task because possession, again, he says, in order to do this, I'm going to have to take your daughter to the 16th century because it hasn't really ever been done in, since he, from what he's heard of in centuries. And it's a very old practice, and it's almost an embarrassment to the Catholic Church yeah, I mean, we, we've been inundated with possession movies over the last 30 years, but back then in the 70s, like, possession was a, a, a myth, you know what I mean? It was, it was not taken seriously ever since the advancement of, uh, of medicine and psychology. And so, Karis is hesitant, but he does agree to meet with the girl. And again, Karis, you can tell he's a very intelligent person because he approaches the demon or the so supposed to possess Reagan with a very cool demeanor, um, almost like light, and he's kind of smiling sarcastically while he's listening to the demon speak. But he, what he was really trying to do was gather evidence for the Catholic Church to perform the exorcism, because without the Catholic Church's permission, he can't perform it. I love his interactions with Reagan and the demon. The dialogue between them is terrific, and the way the demon speaks to Karis is that it could be believable that it is all in Reagan's head, but then also it can be believable that it's a demon. So he, they suggest both ways are possible. For example, when he splashes what he says is holy water on the demon, it, it reacts in pain and agony. But then he tells Chris that it was just tap water. He never blessed it. So that's, it's suggesting to the fact that Reagan's making it all up. But really, it's probably the demon is doing it on purpose to make it seem to them that Reagan is making it up so that he can let... So they let the demon possess her even more. Exactly. So it's the plan of the demon to ultimately not let them exercise her. Yeah, and so Karis continues his investigation. He records some odd language during that holy water scene, which he thinks is a different language, but really it's English in reverse. And then really, probably the most disturbing moment in the film to me is when we see the scars on Reagan's stomach that say, help me. The demon couldn't have done this with the arms tied down, and this we see it appear. So it means that Reagan is somewhere deep inside that body, deep inside the demon, but she can make contact, and she's willing to scratch and cut her own flesh to make contact with someone for help. Yeah, it's a disturbing scene, and it was actually a special effect that they used. It's all practical, and actually the name formed. It was a chemical reaction they used to make the name, the letters form in camera in the moment in real time. So it's not like it's, stop, it's motion capture or stop motion or anything. It's all real time. It's pretty cool. Yeah, again, very iconic scenes too with uh, the going down the stairs. But again, then the projectile vomit scene right into Father Karras' face, which required only one take. And it was actually intended to hit Miller in the chest. But it was a misfire and it hit him in the face. And his reaction of shock and disgust is genuine, even though it's pea soup. But he was very upset about this happening. Those vomit scenes are always disturbing as hell to watch. And then these these pieces of evidence lead Kairos to believe in not entirely in the possession, but in in the, he believes that an exorcism is what's needed to cure Reagan. 
Yeah, because it's not until Father Marin gets involved that he finally truly believes in the possession. So Father Marin gets word from the Catholic Church that his aid is needed. And it's it's kind of great how uh, freaking films this is where Marin's just kind of on a walk in the woods and a little uh, boy brings him a letter and he doesn't even read the letter. He just sees who it's from and you know he knows what it's for because he has one very specific specialty. He's probably the only priest in the world that has performed an exorcism. And they mentioned that he had done it years before and that it nearly killed him. Yeah, it's, he's a fascinating character because he's a veteran of dealing with evil. But that evil has worn him down and it, it's making him weak and frail. And he's he's dealt with so much, so much, so much pain and, and evil in his life. And it seems as though he's he's on his last legs as, as a crusader for good. But you can tell he wants to help this girl because he wants to save her life. And then Marin eventually comes to the house to assist Karis with the exorcism. Or well, I mean, Karis begins to assist Marin because Marin takes the lead. And this is where we see the first interaction between the three of them, Karis, Marin, and the demon. And this is where Karis sees with his own eyes that this is really happening. You know, uh, the demon floats her body, the body floats in the air, the bed floats in the air. He sees things he's never seen before to the point where he's speechless at points and and can't give the responses to Marin in the rituals. And uh, the, after the first time they leave the bedroom, Karis uh, says to Father Marin, Father, what's going on in there? What is it? If that's the devil, why this girl? It makes no sense. And Marin responds, I think the point is to make us despair. Damien, to see ourselves as animal and ugly, to reject our own humanity, and to reject the possibility that God could ever love us. So the demon is trying to make them all dismiss their faith and question their faith. By attacking the most innocent and pure of them, of all of us, uh, an innocent child. And that's what ends up happening with Kairos as he struggles with his humanity and his faith in the film. And these exorcism scenes are so memorable and so disturbing. Like you said, there's the head spinning scene and then the, the levitation scene and the, these amazing practical effects. And my one of my favorite practical effects in the film is the visibility of their breaths throughout the exorcism. Friedkin actually built this set within a freezer and he set the temperature of the set to below freezing and seeing their breaths throughout the scenes, it adds that realism that supernatural powers have taken over the situation and somehow they've cha- it's changed the temperature of the room to below freezing and it's just, it's so fantastical but also so believable and it's, it's a haunting image to see them breathing and see their breaths in the air. Again, practicality, practical effects, everybody. Mm. This film's not also only full of subliminal imagery, but also audio. Like, Freakin' has these sounds of, like, bees in the background, which triggers naturally, like, an innate fear of human beings whenever they hear it. It just makes you feel very uncomfortable, kind of like you get that flight-or-fight instinct, sort of, throughout the film. And then throughout The Exorcism... um, after the first round, Marin goes in there by himself because Karis has basically become corrupt, corrupted by his emotions, and, and Marin doesn't want him in there. But then when Father Karis goes back inside the bedroom, Father Marin is dead. The demon has escaped its restraints and is kind of just like looking inquisitively at Marin on the floor dead until it starts to giggle. Yeah, it seems very satisfied because it seems as though the demon knows Father Marin really well because when he arrives outside of the house... There's that shot of Reagan in the demon has possessed her, and it gives the implication that it knows that Father Marin has arrived, or at least someone powerful has arrived, and it, it seems to know. You know what I mean? 
And also, I think since he was there when the demon was released, they have this history. So the demon recognizes him from Iraq. And so since they have this past and the demon knows of Mirren and his, and his powers of exorcism, they're kind of like rivals. So it's satisfied when it does end up, end up killing him. So Father Karras walks in the bedroom and finds the dead Father Marin, and Karras then attacks the possessed girl, the demon, and this is what the demon wanted all along. The demon wanted to become close to Karras to break down Karras' emotional and spiritual wall. And at this moment, Karras asks for the demon to take him instead, to possess him instead of this little girl, which is, again, what the demon wants. And so the demon takes over Karras' body for about... A few seconds, but Karis is able to fight it off for a little bit before he harms the little girl, before he does anything evil, before he gets fully taken over by the demon, and he jumps out the window to his own death, which basically leads to the death of the demon as well, or so we think. Yeah, so like you said, that's what the demon wanted all along, but what it didn't understand was that Karis, Karis had actually changed. He had transformed into someone who believed again and wanted to do good again, and that's why him volunteering to let the demon possess him shows his transformation as a character who wants to do good again. And so that's why he had the strength to fight the demon off rather than it just overtaking him against his own will. And then that leads to him, his death down the steps, which ties into the subplot of, the, of Kinderman, Lieutenant Kinderman's investigation because he's trying to investigate what happened to Beck Dennings, the film director of, of Chris's movie, because he was found at the bottom of those steps outside with his head spun around. He suspects that there was foul play inside of the household because the way he fell down those steps, he had to have been thrown out of Reagan's bedroom. And also at the bottom of the steps, Kinderman finds a little sculpture. And at first you kind of think it's maybe that sculpture that Father Mirren found in Iraq of, of the demon. But if you look closely at it, it it's... Definitely some kind of clay sculpture animal that looks just like the clay sculpture animals that Reagan makes that are in the kitchen as part of her uh, arts and crafts. And then so that shows that Reagan is the one who threw Beck Dennings out of her window, possessed by the demon. And Chris even knows it, and Chris admits it to Father Karras. But this is before Chris believes that she's fully possessed completely, so she thinks that her... Her daughter, daughter killed killed Beck, and so Father Karras's friend, the priest, who's actually a real priest in real life, this is his only movie role, leads reads him his last rites as he's dying on the sidewalk around people, and this is the end of the film basically because after this, Reagan has her life back. Her and her mother are moving away. Obviously, they want nothing to do with that house, and um, there's this great ending scene where the priest walks up to see how they're doing, and. Chris's mother says thank you to the priest, but she also brings up that Reagan doesn't remember anything. But when I watch the scene every time, I think that Reagan, of course, remembers everything, but she's lying about it because when she sees the priest, she looks at the priest like a hero, even though he isn't the one who saved her, but he's a priest. Yeah, she kisses him on the cheek. I agree with you. I think that she does remember, but she doesn't want her mom to know that she remembers. Yeah, and especially when they're driving away and she's just waving from the back of the window. So yeah. she clearly knows that a priest saved her life. Mm-hmm. So now she has this connection with the church for the rest of her life. And then that amazing score plays, and this is this is one of the most iconic horror scores of all time, that amazing piano theme. The theme, yeah. And whenever you hear that, you, your bones just chill. You, you just get a, 
hairs up your, up your neck because it, it makes you think about this movie, and it's a brilliant theme. Yeah, again, the most terrifying movie of all time probably is the triumph in special effects for the time and the era, which still hold up today. Phenomenal acting, amazing writing, amazing directing. Probably one of the best horror films of all time, if not the best, is up there. If you have never seen this movie... Get out from under your rock. It's it's The Exorcist. You got to do it because this film is the blueprint that every movie in the last 50 years <laughs> that's a horror genre has tried to copy. And obviously, yes, it's one of the best horror films ever made, and it's my favorite. But I also think, hands down, one of the best films ever. I think it's so well made, so well acted. And it, no matter how many times I watch this movie, it has intense effects on me, which is rare to say for a movie that you've seen 20 times. You know what I mean? And so I think it really is one of the greatest films ever made. Before we continue, we want to announce that we have our very first sponsor from Manscaped. This episode of Razor of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. And Manscaped has been super generous. Thank you to Kyle, their rep who sent us each of their performance packages, which features their luxury lawnmower groomer, nose and ear trimming, weed whacker, as well as toners, deodorants. They sent us some shirts and boxers. Really generous, guys. This stuff is amazing. You got to check it out. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Yeah, this stuff is great. The grooming supplies are fantastic. And also... I'm wearing the briefs right now, and they're insanely comfortable. They're so soft, and I'm sporting my Manscaped shirt. Got to represent. Fits, fits perfectly, so highly recommend this brand. Yeah, guys, grooming is a necessary part of life. We all got to do it. This shouldn't also just be an exclusive ad for men. If you have a boyfriend, you have siblings, you have a brother, your father, I'm telling you, this is a great gift for any of the men, brothers, boyfriends in your life. Trust me, any guy would freak out if you got this for them. I was blown away by the lawnmower. It's waterproof. It has a 7,000 RMS motor. It has a built-in flashlight. You can use it it's in the shower. Cool. Yeah. It's insane. I'm not even kidding. I've been using these $12 buzzers from CVS my whole life, and they are garbage <laughs> compared to this thing. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Let's move on to one of our favorite movies of all time, The Shining, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick in 1980, based on the book by Stephen King, haunted with persistent writer's block Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, accepts a job as a caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel and takes his family there for the winter where a sinister presence influences the father into violence while his psychic son sees horrific forbiddings from the past and future. And my God, how it's taken us this long to get the Stanley Kubrick is explainable. We're, we're saving all the great stuff. There's a lot of movie topics to do, guys. We don't want to waste all the best stuff at first for no one to see, but we're getting to it. Don't worry. We, this is probably the most requested movie we've gotten. We'll do a full episode on this someday, but now we're putting it in this episode of Classic Horror Films. It's a classic horror film, but it's also one of the best films ever made and it's i think it's the most iconic paranormal film ever made even growing up as a kid you're aware of the fact that the shining is this great horror movie i feel like before i even saw it i was aware of it in some way that the shining is like the craziest scary movie ever made you it's, know the, what I mean? it's the most iconic might it might be the most iconic horror film of all time mm. mostly because of jack nicholson and his performance and especially with the here's Johnny scene in the door. That's maybe 
the most iconic horror image ever is his head coming through the door after breaking down with an axe. This film is filled with iconic imagery, and that's one of the reasons why it has stood the test of time and why 50 years later people still are obsessed about this movie is because Kubrick's directing in this is otherworldly. This guy is such a genius that he was doing things that no one was even aware of. He was putting things in his movie just to mess with us, and he was so precise in everything. And his intelligence and his ability as a filmmaker transcend anyone else who's ever tried to make movies. He's easily, hands down, one of the best filmmakers to ever do it. And this film is one of the main reasons why. This yes. is this is an unbelievable movie. Stanley Kubrick, very high genius IQ, over 160. This guy is on a different level intellectually than probably every filmmaker ever. Maybe Quentin Tarantino's up there with him because Tarantino's like 162, but I think Kubrick's like 165 IQ. That's absurd. That's like Stephen Hawking, maybe better than Stephen Hawking, intellect. Yeah, and this guy... He makes iconic films throughout history. He made 2001. He made A Clockwork Orange. He made The Shining. This guy, and I would say maybe The Shining is his most loved movie. Would you say that? Maybe, or 2001. Yeah, either one of them. And the ironic thing is he never really wanted to be a filmmaker. What caused him to be motivated to be a filmmaker is he was watching movies in theaters, and he'd always be like, I can make a better movie than this. This movie's terrible. Like, how are they making movies this bad? I can probably do this. He was actually a journalistic photographer for all of his 20s. He which, didn't start making movies until he was in his, like, 31. Yeah, which is why there's so many, like, iconic set photos of him and that he's taken on his on his movies. Yeah, and I think the reason why his movies are so good, because, yes, he's so talented and he's, he was such a genius, but he put so much work into his movies. He The reason why he made so few movies is because... He put years and years before they even started production. He's like the Daniel Day-Lewis of directors where for like 2001, he spent years researching space and, and quantum mechanical um, mathematics. And and with The Shining, he spent years working out the story and reading everything good about paranormal and um, working out what he wanted to make in this movie. And also because he shoots for so long, like this shooting schedule was like almost, it was like half a year, I think. And... All of his movies, they go over schedule, over budget because he's so precise as a filmmaker. And his idea is that if I spent so long prepping for this movie, if I spent three years preparing to make this movie, why would I just spend two months shooting it as quickly as I can? I'm just going to take my time and do exactly what I want because I already committed most a, a huge chunk of my life to making this movie. So I'm just going to take a, a, my sweet old time making this movie. Yeah, his obsessive nature is probably really evident with Napoleon, which was a film that never got made. He spent two or three years, at least, I'm sure, just developing the story, working on the pre-production of a movie he never got to make. Yeah. So that's how obsessive he is with his, his craft. And then during the production of this film, he actually initially collaborated with Stephen King, the author of the book, and if you've read the book and you've seen the film, you can obviously there are very stark differences between the film and, and the in the novelization. Um, and what happened was Kubrick and Stephen King quickly had a strained relationship because obviously King wrote his novel and that was his story, and then Kubrick wanted to take the novel and make his own film with it. And he changed a lot, and he he brought his own ideas and themes into the movie, and they had a very strained and clashing relationship they ended up on horrible terms and because of this Stanley Kubrick even put a little fun little easter egg of Stephen King in the film The Shining 
he actually killed Stephen King. So in the, in in a, a shot of the movie, there's a, a car wreck, and it's a, a red Volkswagen Beetle has been run off the road by a truck, and it's just been totaled. And Kubrick put this in the movie because that was the exact car that Stephen King drove in real life. <laughs> so he essentially killed Stephen King in his movie. Stephen King's a great author, and The Shining's a phenomenal book, but this might be the only instance I can think of where the film is better than the book. And we're not going to go crazy into detail on the differences of the book and the movie. I mean, I think the major difference to me is obviously the axe in the movie. He doesn't use an axe in the book. He uses uh, one of those uh, cricket bats or the crochet. The yeah, yeah, like a yeah, like a wooden bat. But also, I think the main difference is that at the end of the book, Jack sacrifices himself to save Danny, yeah. whereas he never ever finds humanity at the end of The Shining. Yeah, so we won't go into the book at all. I mean, if you want to read the book, go for it. It's a really good read, but again, it's a great book. Rare instance, maybe the only instance where the movie's better than the book because yeah. Kubrick took this in a wildly new direction, staying pretty true to the book in a lot of areas, but of course, takes his own Kubrick spin on it. I think this movie has stood the test of time because of its iconic imagery. I mean, just off the top of my head, there's the shot of the blood pouring out of the elevators. There's Jack sticking his head through the door saying, here's Johnny. There's the red rum written on the door. The maze. The maze, um, especially when he's chasing him through the maze. There's the ghost twins in the blue dresses in the hallway. There's the room 237 with the old lady. There's the baseball bat scene. The ballroom scene where, he, where Jack talks with Lloyd, the bartender. Especially one of my favorites is Danny riding through the hotel. And then, obviously, the most iconic, I think, is Jack being present in the photograph at the end of the film. So Kubrick uses iconic imagery where any one of these images would be the highlight of any other movie, but he has like a dozen of them in this movie. And let's not forget the most iconic line in probably that decade of cinema, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Unbelievable. Another iconic, not imagery, but piece of a movie that lived on forever and still does. Stanley Kubrick's secretary actually wrote all of those pages where it's written, All Work and No Play makes How Jack long did that take her? It took her months to do it. Oh my God. It's estimated from the stack of the papers, the size of it, it had to have been around 400 pages. It's like a Harry Potter book. Yeah. And uh, staying on imagery for a little bit, I want to talk about cinematography before we get deep into the analysis of the film. Absolutely. Kubrick uses a ton of these massive sets to his advantage with these immense wide shots Tons of wide shots in this movie. Not that many close-ups. and um, Those close-ups aren't his style yeah, ever. One of the the best shots in the movie is this wide track shot that follows Omen giving them the tour of the hotel, which is one of the best shots in the film. Yeah. Kubrick used basically a new invention at the time in when this movie was filmed, which was the Steadicam. It was a state-of-the-art filming invention created by Garrett Brown. And this guy basically sent footage, I think, to Kubrick to kind of get his attention and asked to be part of a project or something, and Kubrick was obsessed with what he saw and eventually hired him, and he became the Steadicam operator of this movie, which is heavily used because throughout this film, what happens is all these characters basically become isolated, and we follow their own paths throughout the hotel at the Overlook, and much of the footage of their little travels and their own little worlds in this hotel are done by Steadicam following and tracking. The advantage that Steadicam gave Kubrick was if you want to do shots like these nowadays, it's super, you don't even need a Steadicam. You, do, you can do it on a dolly track, and then you can just CGI the dolly track out. You, it doesn't matter if it shows up. You just erase it from the footage. But obviously, you couldn't do it back then. So whenever you wanted to film extensive tracking shots or long takes where the camera's moving through environments, 
you had to figure out how to how to not shoot the dolly track on the floor. And so what the Steadicam did was it gave Kubrick the freedom to put the camera anywhere, move it anywhere he wanted, go from room to room, scene to scene, environment to environment, and he never had to worry about a dolly track, and the camera stayed as, as, as still and static as it was on a dolly. So implementing the Steadicam on this film really changed the landscape of cinematography in a big way. Yeah, it really gave... The first time, really, in a in maybe cinema ever, it created the camera as much of a character as the actors in the film, and like you're with the camera, and like you feel like you're the camera operator, or you feel like you're engaged with the scenes because the camera is acting in the scenes with the characters, and it's common to see nowadays. And yes, obviously, handheld shots give you that effect too at the time, but we're talking about like the first time long. Steady cam shots, moving through rooms, moving with characters that never really been done before in cinema. Hundred percent, and just like all of other, all of Kubrick's other films, is this movie? It's a horror movie and it's terrifying. But the way that Kubrick has always lit his movies and always did light his movies was that he he wanted everything to be as visual as possible. He wanted you to see every nook and cranny of every room, even with eyes wide shut. His his last film. You were able to see every everything in the scene. He he doesn't he didn't care about making dramatic lighting. He he used this this style of of illuminating everything to make it feel like you were there in the room. Because if you walk into a room, your eyes are much more sensitive than a camera, so you can see everything. Whereas with a camera, oftentimes with a film like this, they'll make it very very dark and contrasty, um, film noirish. But with Kubrick. He lights everything, and in contrasting the ability to see everything, you nowadays we're used to horror films being dark and and, and scary looking visually. But the fact that this movie is so brightly lit, that's what adds to the horror because it's everything's out in the open. It's like daylight, and yet oh, these horrible things are happening. And I think that's one of the reasons why this film is so different from the last. 30 years of, of horror filmmaking. Yeah, and also, yes, again, this is a horror film, but not, like, gore horror, not shock horror. There's not, like, a monster. There's no demons like in The Exorcist. This is a psychological horror. It's an attack on our minds. It's an attack on our emotions. It's also a paranormal horror, I would say. I, yeah, I, I because, would say it's paranormal, but, like, it's it takes a while to understand that it's the, the hotel doing everything. Yeah, because I would say that The Shining, the ability is a supernatural power absolutely and then it's explained by doc that any all sorts of things can shine and shine is is being able to use the psycho this supernatural telekinetic whatever otherworldly power and people can have this power places can have this power and buildings can have this power which is why the overlook hotel is the way it is because it shines just like danny and doc do yeah let's talk about shining for a little bit so both danny and halloran can shine in this world shining like you shining like you said it's a psychological or psychic ability where people can see things in the past they can see things that are about to happen in the future they can talk to other shiners people who can shine without speaking it's basically like a like what doc i mean what harlan explains to doc he calls him doc because he can shine with him he knows what his nickname is it's a fusion of telepathy and clairvoyance i would say it's like the ability to to perceive the supernatural is the way to sum it down and yeah, basically you can communicate with others with the mind and see what's happened in the past. And throughout the film, Danny, with his shining ability, has visions of the hotel, past 
deeds and evil actions that have happened at the hotel. He sees his father getting the job at the hotel in the beginning of the film. So a lot of times we'll we'll be with Danny while he's shining. Usually when he's shining something horrific, there'll be this like loud undertone hum going on, this like hissing noise, which means that Danny's shining, something's horrible is about to happen. And also when he shines, it's revealed as his friend Tony, his imaginary friend. And if you haven't read the book, Tony is actually Danny in the future as an adult. Danny's middle name is Anthony, and he goes his nickname is Tony. And so Danny is shining with his future self. And then Tony reveals information that's vital to his survival throughout the film. And then the little finger move that Danny does is actually a little thing that the young actor who played Danny came up with on the spot. It wasn't even planned by Kubrick. He just did it in his audition, and Kubrick loved it and was like, okay, we're going to do that in the movie. I think it's the only movie he was ever in, too. I think he just did this, and then yeah. just became a normal person afterwards. Yeah, and so Tony, it's kind of perceived that Tony is actually like a kind of like an evil figure. In, at first, yeah. At first, but then we see that Tony is the one who warns Danny about Jack trying to murder them when he writes red rum on the door. It's warning Danny to get out of there because Jack's going to try and murder them. And for the mother, Wendy. Yeah. And the biggest strength in this film, in my opinion, is the tension and the suspense that Stanley Kubrick spends the entire film building. And generally with tension, whether it's a scene or an entire movie, the longer you can build that tension, the longer you can build that suspense, the bigger the payoff is. And the tension starts to build in this movie early on. Um, The opening scene, it's a two and a half, almost three minutes shot of Jack Torrance just driving his car to the Overlook Hotel. And there are these beautiful, steady helicopter shots of the car driving, which we mentioned in a previous episode that uh, he gave footage to really Scott from Blade Runner, the mm-hmm. same footage. and um, It's got that ominous score with the synths, and it's iconic, that yeah, score. So that music, it's actually a variation of Berlioz Symphony Fantastique uh, Movement 5, and the composers, there are two composers, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkin, and they use the analog, analog synthesizer keyboard to create this like um, these ominous tones and this like these weird sizzling sounds and like heartbeats and it's really adds to the tension of the film because again Kubrick builds this tension that car ride the tension starts with that and then also the car ride that Jack takes with his family to the Overlook you can already see the irritability on Jack when his son's asking him questions. Uh, but throughout the f- the first half of the film, first 40 minutes, you know, Kubrick's really just showing us the day-to-day lives of Wendy, Jack, and Danny, although Jack begins to distance himself. But throughout the film, he builds up this tension for an immense payoff. I think with Jack, like you just said, he's irritable in that car ride. I think that Jack already is susceptible to carrying out a horrific act on his family. He's already kind of reached that stage before he even gets to the hotel because there's that scene with the, in the car where he seems to be like annoyed at what they're saying every time they ask him a question or every time Wendy tries to talk to him. And then also there's that story about how he accidentally hurt Danny. Broke his arm. Broke his arm. Um, and so Jack is already, he's a violent person. He's aggressive. And there seems to be a, 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 a deep amount of evil within him. And so I think that before he even gets to the hotel, he's he's already capable of carrying out some heinous, violent act on his family. 
but the hotel just gives him that little push he needs to finally do it. So I think he's a perfect candidate for the hotel because he's already susceptible to the evil. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's got evil in him yet. It's more like, it's kind of like a disconnect. Like, he's a writer with writer's block. Maybe he doesn't even want to be a writer. He's he's a father. Maybe he doesn't even want to be a father. He's a husband. He seems like he doesn't want to be a husband. So he seems like he doesn't even know what he wants to do with his life. He might even just regret his life decisions at this point because, again, he seems like completely disconnected from his family, which, ironically, they go to this hotel by themselves in the middle of that state, whatever city they're in. And um, instead, you would think that a family completely alone in a giant hotel with no one around them would be more together or spend time together. Ironically, throughout the film, Jack separates himself from his family and all the characters eventually kind of disconnect from each other. And we're following them all on their own paths. And Jack distances himself very early from his family and we very even seldomly see him and Wendy in the same shot. They're, they have very few scenes together in the ch- major chunk of this film. Yeah, you're right. He does isolate himself. I don't think any actor ever in history has been able to portray a psychotic person as well as Jack in this movie. Cuba considered the best actors in, in the world for this. He considered De Niro. He, he considered Pacino. But he felt that no one could be as crazy as Jack could. And he does the same thing in, in The Departed where Jack just has this like dangerous quality to him that he can tap into that even the best actors alive can't get. And I don't think anyone else can be this believable as a psychotic person who's losing his mind and becoming deranged. And his performance is part of why this movie is so iconic. It's also uh, why he didn't get the part of Father Karras in The Exorcist because Friedkin's like, yeah. he's too kind of evil. Like you see, you, Jack seems like a messed up guy to yeah. be a pure priest. Yeah, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but the, he has, he can tap he's into this that quality edge, that no one else can get. I want to talk about what you think the ending is of Jack. When when Jack winds up in the photograph from the 1920s of that ballroom party at the Overlook Hotel, why is Jack in that photograph, do you think? To me, when I see that, just like the memories that are trapped and the ghosts that are trapped in the hotel, Jack's soul has become imprinted on the hotel. He's become a part of the Overlook. And he's become the lead face or the lead character of the Overlook. He's the the prize crown jewel of the Overlook Hotel now because he's front and center in front of all these people. He's in front of ghosts who he's never met before. So maybe Jack represents the Overlook. Interesting theory. It's right on the spot. So I have a completely different theory. Let's hear your theory. And you just said, actually, you just said he's in front of ghosts that he's never met before. I actually think that's not true. I think that Jack was in that photo when it was taken, but he wasn't Jack Torrance. He was Grady, the caretaker. So when he has that conversation with Grady in the bathroom, Grady tells him that, Jack's always been the caretaker here. And so what I think that means is that Jack is a reincarnation of Grady. And Jack is the one who killed his family with an axe, which is that story that they're told by Ullman. And so in the past, this previous spiritual version of Jack 
was Grady, who murdered, who was in the Overlook Hotel and murdered his family. That's why he's he was in that photograph because he was always in that photograph. He's always been the caretaker here. So I think the spirit reincarnates itself into a different person, and then is drawn back to the hotel where it needs to carry out this deed of murder and blood and bloodshed as kind of like a sacrifice that the hotel needs in order to keep to, to keep surviving and keep shining. And so I think that Jack is Grady. And then that Grady in the bathroom scene that has a conversation with Jack, that's not Grady. That's the hotel. I think that's the personification of the hotel speaking to Jack. And then Jack, since he's reincarnated, he doesn't remember being Grady in the past. But he has these instances where he says, he tells Wendy that he had this odd feeling that he's been here before and that... He recognized the place, even though he never set foot in the hotel that he remembers. He knows Lloyd. He know, And then, yeah, exactly. He goes to Lloyd. He's like, I like you, Lloyd. I've always liked you. So how can he always like him? And I think that's because Jack was Grady in the past. Re- and now he's been reincarnated as this new version, Jack. One of my favorite movie villains of all time, for sure. And as a viewer, you spend the majority of this film waiting for the inevitable to happen. The story is very slow-paced. It's like a fire, and it's slowly spreading through each of the hallways of the hotel, through each of the rooms in the hotel. We know Jack is dangerous. Again, we talked about how he accidentally broke Danny's arm, um, as when he talks about in the beginning of the film. We know his mind is withering away. This is one of the best parts of the film, is we're slowly watching the mental deterioration of Jack, and we get the the best example of the Kubrick stare in this movie of Jack <laughs> in that black sweater, just staring off into the distance while his wife and son are in the maze. He's just looking out a window, a crazy look on his face. And we also know, like you said earlier, there's a tragic incident uh, of a former caretaker, Grady, which Ullman explains, and obviously Grady's the the person who helps clean him off in the bathroom for murdering his family with an axe in the Overlook Hotel due to derangement from isolation over a long period of time so we think (laughs) and it's almost really an hour until something substantial happens in the film where like the first fight between jack and wendy happens when wendy comes to like bring him lunch and he's like when you're when i'm in here and you see me typing (laughs) that means you don't come in here (laughs) he tells her just start by getting the fuck out something like that and um yeah he's he's becoming unhinged yeah and that's the first really piece of action we've seen in the film mm. for a while and wendy is surprised and just shocked by it and it's not until like a full hour later when we see the full insanity and mental breakdown of jack torrance when he tries to kill wendy with her going in there with a baseball bat asking to take danny to a doctor that's such an iconic and disturbing scene just one of my favorite shots is when wendy finds the the work that he's been writing and she sees that it's just a repeated line of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Kubrick makes this amazing image of the typewriter in the foreground. And then it's looking up at Wendy's face. And it's it's such a, a an amazing shot and a perfect way to film that moment. You see her reaction. She goes from page to page to page and always does the same, same thing. And I think the repetition of that line, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy represents the never-ending eternity of hell. The interesting thing I see when I see that line is, in all this work and these hundreds of pages, is like, was Jack this crazy the moment they got to the Overlook? Or how many weeks has he been out of his mind? Because 
that's a lot of work. Like you said, the secretary, Kubrick's secretary, that took her months to do. So, like, as soon as Jack had started writing his book, that's all he's ever been writing. That's why I think he was already very susceptible to the hotel because of his um, deep hidden nature. That's why I think right from the get-go he was writing this. And I love the scene because the way they reveal Jack is Wendy's just like going through pages and there's that shot behind her. And then you just see the shadow of Jack Torrance come into frame. And to me, when I watch this, it's like, it seems like Jack had been like waiting in the shadows of this yeah. giant room, waiting for Wendy to come into the room, waiting for Wendy to find find his work. Because then he goes, how do you like it? How do you like it? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and now Jack is completely uh, unhinged and he has been completely overtaken by the hotel and that leads to that amazing sequence where she's backtracking with the baseball bat and he's just pacing towards her and it goes up to the steps and I remember as a kid watching this and she's just shrieking and crying and desperate and her husband is just walking up the steps closer and closer to her and he says I'm not gonna hurt you." I'm just going to bash your head in. I'm just going to bash your brains in. <laughs> you think maybe you should be taken to a doctor. <laughs> as soon as possible. As soon as possible. Light of my life. <laughs> it's, one of my, it's my favorite scene in the movie for sure. <laughs> and it's, it's terrifying too. Speaking of that, that main hall of the hotel, we all know there's so much hidden symbolism in, the, in this movie that Kubrick placed in. The most visible of all of it is the Native American decorations and decor throughout the hotel and there's a lot of native american imagery in this film and it's first spoken about by Ullman, who tells jack and wendy that the hotel was built upon a native american burial ground and so it alludes to the idea of the massacre of the native american population by americans in early america and it's depicted not just through, through the decor, but Wendy and Danny are often wearing wardrobes that are red, white, and blue. Throughout the film, they're always wearing red, white, and blue. And then Ullman is also wearing red, white, and blue. He has an American flag on his desk, too. American flag on his desk. And also there's an American flag in the hotel, in that hall as well. And then there are Native American logos on the food cans within the pantry. And so it alludes to the idea of Native American history seen through American eyes. And the genocide of Native Americans. Genocide of America, Native Americans, yeah. And also, the blood pouring out of the elevator could be a metaphor for, for the, the genocide. genocide. Or it could just be of the past horrors of the hotel. Yeah, it could be. It's, it's yeah. hard to say which one, you know. Because yeah. um, Kubrick is such a symbolic filmmaker and... There's something else that he does in this film. We won't get too much into like the conspiracies. Or yeah, yeah. We're not going to talk about conspiracy theories. Yeah, but like blatant symbolism. But I want to talk about the continuity in this film, where there's a lot of scenes in this film where Kubrick messes with the continuity of scenes and sets. Um, for example, he'll, he'll shoot a scene in this movie, and he'll change something about the sets mid-scene that you wouldn't have noticed unless you're trying to pay attention or, or have seen it a million times. And like... He'll remove a chair from a background that was just in the shop before. He'll move a cigarette on a desk. Um, he changes the the typewriter that Jack uses in multiple scenes. So continuity basically in filmmaking means having a consistent image 
throughout the throughout the film or throughout a scene or having consistencies. You don't want like a glass being half empty when it was just full. But shit happens to accidents in film. But this was not an accident in this film, in my opinion. Stephen Kubrick, again, he's a very intelligent person. He does things on purpose. He doesn't change the typewriter from being white to dark gray just by accident. He doesn't move a chair out of a shot by accident. So the reason that Stanley Kubrick, you can suggest why he does this, is to make it seem like the hotel is alive. It shows that the Overlook Hotel does have a magical quality to it, and it's alive. I totally agree, and I think that some people debate about how Jack got out of the pantry when Wendy locked him in, and I think the answer is very simple. It's what you just said. The, the hotel is alive, and the hotel is what let him out of the pantry because it can change the structure of itself because it shines. And yeah, some people think it's just we're analyzing it a little too much. It's just accidents. But again, this is Stanley Kubrick. This is probably the most intelligent filmmaker to ever live. Nothing's an accident. Everything he does is on purpose. What do you think? I want to ask you a question. What, why do you think room 237 is so significant in the hotel? I, be, I believe in the book that's where murder takes place, right? I guess so. I would just say something horrible must have happened there because I think that 237 is the most powerful room in the hotel. Oh, it absolutely is. That's yeah. why uh, Doc... I mean, that's why Halloran tells Doc to stay out of there. Yeah. He says, whatever you do, don't go near room 237. So maybe the source of the hotel's power and shining comes from that room. Yeah, maybe. Or it's the most horrific place that... It's the the place where the most horrific event has taken place. But I think... Yeah, maybe the hotel already shined and then the most horrific thing happened there. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember, but I, I haven't read the book in a long time, but I think a murder happened in there. Yeah, I think you might be right. One of my favorite symbols in the movie, it's pretty subtle, is um, in the opening of the film, when Jack's doing his interview, he's wearing this green knit tie, and if you zoom in on the tie, it looks just like the maze. Exactly. Just like it. It's pretty freaky. There's also some little fun little things, like uh, when Jack is waiting to be called into Omen's office, he's reading a, a pornographic magazine. <laughs> yeah, he's reading a Playgirl. So I think Kubrick does these subtle things to make you show, like you keep saying, that Jack already was going down the path of insanity. Yeah. Because who reads a Playboy while waiting for a job interview mm -hmm. in a room full of people? Jack's amazing, and his performance is incredible, and there's a ton of great behind-the-scenes footage of him like trying to get into character. As a, he's like, I'm an ex-murderer. I'm a yeah, crazy Yeah, when person. he's amping himself up to tear down the door. Yeah, and um, there's a great documentary about this about this movie called Room 237 about like all these conspiracies and all the all the images on on screen that you wouldn't have noticed on just viewing normally. Yeah. Um, the that famous axe scene took three days to film until Kubrick was satisfied, and Jack Nicholson ended up tearing down sixty doors in the process. Jesus. <laughs> Let's talk about Danny for a little bit because he's kind of basically the hero of the film. Um, Danny again, he he shines. And so Danny provides this sense of unease throughout the film. He, he gives us this tension that something terrible is going to happen at the Overlook with his visions. And Kubrick also, early on the film, frames Danny in ways to show imminent danger. There are these two great shots when Danny and his family are given the tour by Halloran. And then Halloran's by himself with, with Danny, a.k.a. Duck. And it's the scene where... They're walking around the kitchen, then also when they're sitting down to get ice cream, but Kubrick places half a dozen knives above Danny's head, pointing down. They're hanging on, the, on a magnet on the wall, and just shows you that 
something horrible is going to happen to Danny. Mm. Great foreshadowing. And also, ice cream sounds like ice cream. Oh, yeah. Pretty cool, huh? I wonder if that's on purpose or not. It's on purpose. <laughs> it's Kubrick. And we all know how this ends with the very popular maze scene where Danny outsmarts Jack by retracing his steps in the snow, forcing Jack to get lost in the maze and freezing to death. So Halloran has Halloran has the shining interaction with Danny, which causes him to come and drive up to the Overlook despite there being a massive snowstorm. And ironically, again, even though the family's also isolated from themselves and Jack is going insane, they're also isolated from everybody else because they've lost communication and no one can travel up there because of the storm. And also Jack has taken out the radios. <laughs> yeah. And so we're waiting for this murder to happen at some point. Where's this murder going to happen? And unfortunately, it happens to Halloran. And it's pretty terrifying when he's walking through the giant lobby. And then out of the out of behind <laughs> one of the pillars comes Jack with a freaking axe. Screaming like a madman. Stabs man. him right in the chest with it. I think that's... I think that when when Doc is killed right there by Jack and, and his blood is spilled, the hotel gains more power with its shining. Because right after that happens, then Wendy starts ex- experiencing all the shining powers of the hotel. Like the crazy things start happening. Like she sees the man and the, and the person dressed up as an animal. She sees the corpses. And she sees the, the ballroom covered in webbing. So I think when it, it gets its first taste of bloodshed, it gets more power. This is one of my favorite movies, and I think it's one of the greatest horror films ever made. And it's endlessly rewatchable, and I always enjoy it every time I see it. Man, I want to watch it right now. Yeah, right? Let's put it on, even though it's, what, almost <laughs> 11 p.m.? <laughs> Let's move on to Jaws, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, released in 1975. This film was nominated for four Oscars, winning three. When a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community... It's up to a local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer to hunt down the beast. And to people out there who don't think that Jaws is a horror movie, there are no zombies, yes, there are no vampires, no knife-wielding maniacs, but there's a giant fish eating people to death, all right? This is a horror movie. It's a monster movie. This is the best monster movie ever made. And a lot of people who are unfamiliar with Jaws, or maybe they haven't seen it since they were young, or maybe they haven't seen it at all, they might have the wrong impression of Jaws, thinking it's a cheesy horror, cheesy monster movie, but it is hands down one of the best films ever made, and it could be Spielberg's best movie. You say that for like every movie we talk about. This is like one of the best films ever made. That's three, three, three movies in a row. Well, we just look at the movies we're I doing know, we today. Just, the Exorcist <laughs> and The Shining, but I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Jaws is a terrifying film, especially on your first viewing. It's still terrifying when you watch it for the fifteenth time, like every time we see it, and um. People today, all around the world, are still scared to go in the ocean, to go in the water at the beach because of Jaws. Well, I mean, to this day, whenever I go swimming out in the ocean and go pretty deep, I just always, like, kind of for a second think about Jaws, and I'm like, is there a giant shark underneath me right now? (laughs) Because that's what's there is a scary aspect to the ocean, and I can understand why some people are afraid to swim out, because you can't see underneath you. It's the unknown. And it's... It's huge. It's huge underneath you. There's so much depth for anything to be swimming beneath you. So it is. It can be frightening swimming out in the ocean, and then just thinking about a giant shark is just horrifying. Yeah, that's why it's so effective. Because again, this is the ultimate monster movie. Because one of the most horrifying aspects of Jaws and the shark is we never really know where the shark is. Yes, we do get glimpses of him. We see him a little bit here and there, but 
we see the yeah we see the dorsal fin but and those barrels for a few minutes but the true terror of jaws is where is the shark and the only time you see the shark is when it's about to eat you in the first half of the film Spielberg's reveal of the shark multiple times is POV shots of the shark and so you see these POV shots of people swimming at the surface of the ocean and you're you're in the POV of the shark um, meters below them and it's done so effectively and you know that something horrible is about to happen because the shark's closing in on its prey and I think the best instance of this is the opening scene which is one of the greatest opening scenes in a horror film it's the and it's done with no dialogue at all. It's that there's a bonfire going on on the beach, and the guy and girl are on opposite sides, opposite sides of the party, and they have this this like they keep meeting each other's eyes, and they keep like sharing gazes at each other, and then they both run off to the to the shore because they're gonna go skinny dipping together, and then the guy passes out from drunkenness, and then the girl goes out swimming on her own, and that leads to that iconic opening scene where something just grabs a hold of her. And just jerks her across the surface of the water. You don't know what has her, but it's powerful and it's terrifying. And she's shrieking, and then it just takes her under. And then, but before that happened, Spielberg did that POV shot from deep underneath the water, looking up at her legs as she's swimming. And it's an amazing way to start this movie where you show a horrible act of violence and death, but you don't even know what did it. And right away, you're terrified of whatever is underneath that water. You don't know what it is, but it's horrifying. Yeah, and this is one of the few shots in the film that are actually at night. A lot of this movie is filmed in broad daylight, sun bright as hell, which alludes more to the terror of Jaws because a lot of horror movies, a lot of monster movies depend on nighttime to bring that like fear and unknown, you can't see much kind of terror to you in the dread. But really, if you make a movie in broad daylight, this scary that's a testament to the monster that you're creating. And sharks are perfect killing machines. They've been around for 16 million years. The great, the great white shark is virtually a perfect predator. You know, everything else on the planet was was evolving except for these sharks. <laughs> and there's no need for them to evolve because, again, they are perfect killers. Like you said, we don't really see the shark that often. And the reason why that happened was I think it's pretty widely known that the mechanical shark that they built for the film ended up breaking down constantly. It kept sinking to the bottom of the ocean. It kept, um, and it was half the time unusable. And so Spielberg, he had designed these scenes where we would see more instances of the shark itself. And then because of the faulty mechanism they built, he had to figure out a way of telling the story while showing as little as a shark of the shark as possible, which ironically ended up being one of the strengths of the movie because the lack of visibility of the shark is what makes it more terrifying. Yeah, uh, they're called the Bruces. They made three of these mechanical sharks that cost about a quarter million dollars a piece, each with their own different types of functions. Some had openings on different sides meant for different types of shots. And um, Yeah, so like one of them had the right side had the shark and then the, the other side was mechanical. The other one had opposite and then one was made just for the top of it being visible yeah and this is again you talked about this earlier on in a very early episode of the podcast is that alfred hitchcock suspense building where if you if you shoot a scene where there's a bomb under the table and the bomb explodes that's uh an a a disastrous action but if you show the bomb and it doesn't go off that's suspense and so spielberg spends the entire movie showing you the bomb under the table but it doesn't explode until at the very end my favorite scene of this is um, that, that scene at night 
where those two fishermen are on, are on the dock, and then um, they spike the roast beef. Yes, and they spike the roast beef to try and catch the shark, and it grab the shark grabs a hold of the roast beef, but and then the shark breaks the dock off the shore and drags the dock across the water with it, and then one of the fishermen falls in the water, and you think, oh, okay, well at least he can swim to shore, but then since he can't show the shark. Spielberg comes up up with a really creative way to carry out the suspense of the scene where rather than showing the shark turning around and going after the man, you just see the dock turn around and then the dock starts floating across the surface towards the man. And you don't know what the shark looks like, but you know whatever it is, it's powerful. that It's so strong that it can carry this dock across the ocean. And that's even more terrifying, this gigantic beast that can carry an entire dock across the surface. Yeah, it also is more powerful than the boat they use because it's, it's outpowering the boat. And it's also so powerful that it can hold down one of those three kegs that they strap onto the shark. And it takes them underwater. And that's incredibly powerful for a shark or for any creature at all. Yeah, exactly. This movie, Jaws, created the summer blockbuster. Over 67 million people in the U.S. went to see this film which is which was released in 1975, making it really the first blockbuster. And um, summertime was really the time for B movies to be be released. These cheesy action movies. So the summertime was never really the prime time for these action blockbusters to come out. But then major Hollywood studios realized, holy crap, summertime is the best time to release these action movies. And that's now obviously why people like Chris Nolan. July comes around or June, you're seeing a Chris Nolan movie every two years. Yeah, there's always going to be a Marvel movie in July and June. And then this film showed off Spielberg's talents in blocking. I think that Steven Spielberg is probably the greatest blocker in film history. And for anyone who doesn't know what blocking is, it's the interaction of actors in a scene in relation to the camera. And so how they're how they're standing in a scene, how they move in a scene, how the camera moves around them or with them or shows them. And Spielberg, I think, is hands down the most creative and brilliant blocker in history. And this sh- this film shows it through his extensive use of long takes. You wouldn't notice it watching this movie for the first time, but Spielberg uses a ton of long takes, like entire scenes, just one cut. Like there's a scene on the ferry where... The mayor is trying to talk Brody out of canceling Fourth of July, and and Spielberg doesn't even move the camera or cut it. He just holds the camera on them, and the ferry goes across the water, and the entire scene plays out. And then there's another scene where the mayor, Brody, and Hooper are talking about closing the beach, and they're having an argument. And again, Spielberg doesn't cut the camera. He just plays out the entire scene with different camera movements and setups, and he's essentially through moving the camera from person to person or changing the blocking of the actors, he's essentially editing the shot as he's filming. Rather than actually cutting to different takes, he's creating different takes with his camera. And this is an incredible use of long take camera blocking in this film. He also has an incredible ability to balance mood and emotion in this film. He's constantly going back between fun and wonder and terror and it's masterful. Like many of the scenes are scenes are very intense. They're frightening, but many of the scenes are also hysterical and light. And a lot of the interactions and conversations are fun. Um, again, it takes place in broad daylight with the majority of this film. Again, alluding to the fact that even with bright lights, we still have no idea where the shark is, and it makes it even more terrifying. And I think the the biggest example of that is that beach attack where 
the residents know that there's a shark in Amity, and everyone's on the beach, but no one's in the water. Everyone's kind of afraid to go in the water, and Brody's sitting in his chair keeping a watch out on the water. And then slowly but surely, people begin going into the water, and, and soon the tension's gone, and everyone's having fun. And all these beachgoers are having a good time, finally. And then it cuts to all those children playing together in the water, and they're splashing around having fun. And then all of a sudden, the kid in the back, something overtakes him, and then blood gushes everywhere. And you're like, oh my god. He built this tension up, and then just committed this heinous act of violence on us, and we we knew it was gonna happen, but he he made he he stretched out that suspense for like five minutes, and when it finally did happen, it was so shocking. Yeah, so basically, what happens in this film? If you, if you've never seen, you've been also living under a rock. <laughs> a shark has been attacking this Amity, this town called Amity, and the mayor wants to keep July Fourth weekend up and running. He wants people there and tourists there, so it's up to the sheriff as well as marine the sheriff Brody, marine biologist. Hooper and Quint, who's an old seafarer, to hunt down the shark and kill it. And now Brody's one of Brody's main conflicts is his opposition with the mayor. And then in some ways you can understand what the mayor's doing because Amity is a town that relies on the summer months for its economy to stay healthy. All of the businesses thrive in those few short months during summer. They need tourists to come to the beaches, and if they don't, then the residents who own these businesses can fall under. And so he's doing, yes, he can. he's being greedy and selfish, and he's putting his people at risk, but in a certain way, you can understand that he's trying to keep the town from falling under. But Brady's main, Brody's main opposition is, Brody is a man who's obsessed with safety. He's always, like, badgering, like, his wife and son about doing things that are too dangerous, so... He's obsessed with keeping people in the town safe. And Brody's also afraid of water. He's a massive fear of water. And there's this great scene where the shark attacks are happening. And Brody's at home looking at photos of sharks and shark attacks in this book. And this really effectively gets us into the mind that the shark is a killer. And it helps the audience think that like it's a killer specifically of humans. It's almost like Brody's going through like a file on a serial killer. <laughs> Just kind of looking at all these crime scenes. And then he experiences a great amount of guilt when the boy is killed because the boy was killed on his watch. And for someone who's so obsessed with safety, he allowed, he, he was unable to protect and keep his residents safe. And then, obviously, with his opposition with the mayor, there's a really cool scene where I mentioned earlier that ferry scene. And the mayor and a, a couple of city councilmen are, are badgering Brody about not closing the beaches. And now in this scene, the wardrobe is, is laid out in a very specific way. So Brody's wearing his sheriff attire, but then the mayor and, and the other city councilmen, they're wearing blues and grays, very similar to the colors of sharks. So if you look at this again, their suits and pants and shirts, light grays, light blues, and they also all have red ties. And so Spielberg is making them appear as though they're like, they're bloodthirsty sharks who are just interested in making money. And they're, they're swarming around their prey, Sheriff Brody. And it's an amazing metaphor for what a shark is. There are two other main characters in this film. Uh, Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfuss, is an oceanographer. He's brought in as a, an advisor and um, useful 
voice of exposition information on sharks and what's happening. And also Quint, who's played by Robert Shaw. And Quint has like the most hilarious opening en- entrance <laughs> into the film where he's just like scratches his nails on a chalkboard to get the uh, attention of a town meeting. And uh, which has obviously been like made fun of in so many comedies in <laughs> South Park for sure. But Quint is kind of like that like old sailor who's been through it all and he's been through war and everything. This, this trio is basically like they're the A-team to get Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing about it is uh, Richard Dreyfus and uh, Robert Shaw hated each other's guts on the set of this movie, but it also added a ton of great tension between the two characters. Spielberg shows us rather than telling us how, how good Quint is at his job when they walk into Quint's home and then there's dozens upon dozens of shark jaws laid and hanging on his walls. And you know f- right away, if you need someone to kill a shark, this is the guy to do it. Yeah, that's how he introduces himself. He's, he's like, you know what I do. You know what I do. Kind of has this unhinged desire to kill as many sharks as possible because of what he experienced when the, the USS Indianapolis sank. And when he when he saw friends and fellow sailors eaten alive by sharks that instilled this need for him to kill sharks which is why he chose this career and why he becomes so bloodthirsty to kill this shark in particular yeah that might be the best scene in the movie where it's the nighttime scene in the galley of the ship and the men are drinking the apricot brandy and Quentin Hooper are comparing their scars from shark attacks and, and yeah. what's happened to them in their past. And, and ironically, they're finally bonding. Yeah, they're finally having their only moment of, of like uh, heavy Levity. discourse. Yeah. And um, Quint launches into that monologue about what happened in, at the Indianapolis. And he was one of its crew members. And of the 1,100 men who went overboard, he says the sharks ate all of them but 316. And they averaged six an hour, eating the men alive. So Quint's been through, his character's been through more than any pain you could probably endure from sharks, physically and psychologically. Yeah, and so that's why I think his tragic past fuels him, especially in the fact that near the end of the film, he pushes the boat so hard to, uh, to draw the shark in the shallow water that he breaks it down. So he commits this stupid, reckless act because he's become so bloodthirsty to kill this thing because of what's happened to him and his friends in his past. And then for that famous monologue scene, um, it's rumored that he was drunk when he did it, but that's not exactly true. Robert Shaw um, was an alcoholic, and he struggled with drinking on set of this movie. And for this scene in particular, the first day they filmed it, Robert Shaw decided to do the monologue drunk because that's what the, the character was drunk in the scene. And they tried shooting it all night, and then the scene was so the footage was so unusable because he was just belligerent drunk. They had to scrap everything. They shot that entire day, and then that night, Robert Shaw called up Spielberg and apologized and said, um, "I'm going to make it up to you tomorrow." And then the next day, he shot that now infamous monologue in one take. Great actor with a troubled past, yeah, and demons himself. And then Richard Dreyfuss's Hooper is a perfect contrast with Shaw because Shaw is this blue-collar guy who's never had more than 10 cents to rub together. But then Hooper comes along, and he's this trust fund kid, comes from money, um, very intelligent scholar. Um, He has all this high-tech gear, 
and this crazy boat and and then sh- and then Quint thinks it's just like a little ridiculous and he doesn't know anything. He just he's never really experienced anything. And they are very in de- very they're very different and they clash at first, but they're actually very similar because they both share an intense love for the sea and they've both committed their lives to the to working and living on the ocean. Which is why I think after spending a couple of days together, they finally end up bonding uh, bonding in that scene. We need to talk a little bit about John Williams here because his score in Jaws might be one of his best. It's uh, the second film that he won an Oscar for. He, uh, the first Oscar he ever won was Fiddler in the Roof. He's won five total. This might be his most iconic. I mean, we all think of Star Wars, obviously. But the Jaws theme is unique because... It's simple. You know, you could ask anyone, even if they've never played piano or played an instrument, you could ask them, go on the piano and play me the Jaws theme. Everybody could do it. Yeah, you can figure it dun, out. Dun, no problem. Dun, 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 and it's just, the film wouldn't be as great, as terrifying, as iconic as it is without John Williams' score. It's that important. And it's ironic because when he first showed Spielberg the main theme, Spielberg thought he was joking. It made the film work. Yeah, he admitted that you know he it wouldn't have been as good as it was without the score. No way. And the first time we we see the shark, we see how massive it is. It's when uh, Brody's not paying attention. He's smoking a cigarette and he's just throwing chunks of meat into the ocean. And he's looking at back at the guys on the ship. And behind him, the shark comes out of the water for the meat. And the shark doesn't try to bite him. The shark like kind of seems like it's just coming up to say hi and see what's <laughs> going on. What's on the ship? What what who are these people? And it's terrifying because it's so freaking big. And yeah, it's a robot. It's not CGI. It did break down a lot. It had minimal um, movement, but it still works. The practicality of it works. Yeah, it doesn't look exactly like a real shark. But in the moments and in the scenes, you believe it because Spielberg makes you believe it. And when that shark popped up for the first time, your heart drops. And then Brody says that line, you're going to need a bigger boat. Which he ad-libbed. Yeah, it was improvised. And as we've talked about earlier, Spielberg hid the shark this whole movie. Even when they came across that that ship that had been torn to pieces and the dead body and and what the, the damage that the shark had done. What he does is he shows the actions of the shark rather than showing the shark committing the actions. He shows what the aftermath of it. Or he shows what's happening above the water. And we finally get to see this massive... 25-foot, three-ton killing machine. And also, on top of that, I think the way that Spielberg successfully displays horror, he puts children in danger. Just like in Jurassic Park when the T-Rex attacks the kids in the car, he has the shark attack kids in this movie because there's something different about watching a, a child being attacked by a monster rather than watching an adult. It kind of makes the stakes a little bigger. And it's more affecting in a way. And so I think he uses the ability of ha- putting children in danger to great effect to make it even scarier. Of course, it's because of the innocence of children versus a piece of crap adult who's chain smoking cigarettes all day. Exactly. The shark attacks the boat. Oh, my God. And absolutely just eats Quint alive. When it jumps onto the boat. Insane. And yeah, we've, we've all seen this movie. We all know how it ends. Dude, watching Quint. Sliding, he's down, sliding down, and he's like, "No, no, no, no!" Trying he's to trying his to, feet out. He's trying to hold, grab onto something, and he just slides into the mouth of the shark. Oh my god! Oh my god! Eats him up. Yeah, and the way Brody kills the shark by throwing the tank in its mouth and shooting the tank with a gun, 
there's actually kind of a, a reference of that earlier on when we talked yeah. about when Brody's going through the book of the shark attacks, there's an image of a shark with a tank in its mouth. So that probably inspired him to, I can blow the shark up by shooting that tank in its mouth. It's a great ending because it's so satisfying, the ending, watching the... Because the, when the shark explodes and just bursts into blood and guts and flesh, you know it's been killed. And I think the audience needed to see that kind of ending because that's what the shark deserved. And we had the two heroes survive. This movie, it's one of the best horror films of all time. Like you said, probably the best monster movie of all time. One of Spielberg's best. Uh, this film was played with reshoots and in, 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 uh, production setbacks, but he made it work. It became one of the most successful horror movies of all time. Uh, it also has the most perfect movie poster ever, which mm. is the backdrop of you. And it's just so good. And I love Jaws. Yeah, this is one of my favorite movies. And I think it could be Spielberg's best movie. And hands down, the greatest monster movie ever made. Moving on to The Thing, directed by John Carpenter in 1982. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. I love this movie. It's John Carpenter's best movie. And what sets it apart from the other classic movies on this list is its sheer disturbing imagery. The uh, The special effects was groundbreaking. Um, when you watch this movie, it's thrilling, intense, terrifying and just plain disgusting at times yeah this the practical effects are very disturbing and they still hold up to this day despite this movie being 40 years old almost dude every time i watch this i'm like these special effects look amazing still yeah it's it it's also campy at the same time it's like watching the evil dead you yeah. know you know it's fake you know it's it's uh cheap effects nowadays but my god they did a fantastic job with what they were working still with still fucking disturbs me man um this movie has two incredibly unique opening sequences the film opens with uh this provocative image of a flying saucer crashing towards space then we cut to the frozen continent of antarctica where a helicopter is chasing a husky across a frozen tundra with a guy hanging out the side of the helicopter shooting at it with a rifle so this is what makes Carpenter a great filmmaker is he, that famous idea of filmmaking where you show, don't tell. He's not telling us why this is happening. And the first time you watch this movie, you're like, why are they trying to kill this dog so badly? They're literally on a helicopter chasing this dog, and this guy is shooting a sniper rifle at it. And then they ended up running into the, the encampment of the Americans where they try to protect the dog. And still that guy keeps trying to shoot the dog, which leads to the cop on duty killing the Norwegian uh, um, scientist. Yeah, because the Norwegians are screaming at him in a different language. He shoots one of the Americans in the leg. Yeah. But really, they don't know what the Norwegian's trying to do, which, obviously, spoiler alerts, he's trying to warn them that the dog is a freaking alien monster. Every time I watch this movie now in the first act, and whenever I see the dog, I'm like, oh, my God, it's it. That's the thing. <laughs> it's terrifying. Because as as you fi figure out in this movie, the thing is an alien that shapeshifts and can duplicate perfectly anything it wants and so in this instance in the opening of the film the thing has duplicated a dog and so that's why these norwegian scientists are trying to kill it yeah and later we learn that um the craft that crashed on the planet earth in what is now in what's antarctica according to the characters it's perhaps been buried there for a hundred thousand years in the book, I think it's 10,000 years. Yeah, it's deep in the snow. Yeah, I mean, but, oh, I'm sorry, deep in the ice. Yeah, but that's virtually like all we get about the thing's past. I mean, they show glimpses of the, of the giant flying saucer and the ship and everything. 
But there's obviously unaddressed uh, implications about where it's from, what its purpose is. Um, the ship, however, looks incredibly advanced and sophisticated. Obviously, very intelligent life forms created it and flew it there. And the thing with the thing, the thing with the thing, <laughs> is you you don't know what it's already done in this continent. Like, you don't know. Obviously, it's been to the Norwegian camp because they go and check out the Norwegian camp, and it's been burnt down. It's in ruins. Yeah. And the dog was obviously being chased from there. And then there's that frozen being of, it looks like two people mashed together. That was burnt alive, then yeah, yeah, froze. That leads to, when they investigate the Norwegian camp, we see that they filmed all this video footage of them uncovering what seems to be some kind of organism or some kind of being within the ice, and they excavated it. And then we learn eventually that this is actually the alien creature that can duplicate itself. And for some reason, they decided to take this frozen, disem- like dismembered, beyond natural state being back to their base. The vanity of mankind, to man. To analyze it. And my God, what a bad decision. Well, I mean, the, the thing was already there anyways with the dog because the dog is now part of their little base now. Yeah. And then, so that yeah, there's that frozen structure of that being where... It was in the middle of morphing. And so the first time that the thing really reveals itself is inside of the dog pen where um, they bring the husky in to, to stay with the other huskies. And then right when, the, right when the, husky, the alien husky goes down, it just sits down and just stares at them. And then the other dogs start freaking out. And then finally the thing reveals itself and begins transforming in order to grab a hold of the other dogs and transform into them and duplicate them. What the thing wants to do is to transform and duplicate into as many things as possible to spread. And then there's that that leads to that um, intense first scene where the men first encounter the thing and then um child shows up with a flamethrower and they just and he just burns it up. But first it like grows those giant arms and breaks through the ceiling. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? And again, practical effects, 1980s. Does this hold up? It absolutely still does. Yeah, and then the shapes of the thing are just absolutely disturbing. And I think the reason for that is because, yes, it can it, it, it takes the shape and duplicates perfectly into what it wants, but it takes some time to do that. And the process of, of duplicating it 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 shifts into these these disturbing shapes, and I think these shapes are um, instances of the past creatures that the thing has changed into and duplicated throughout its travels throughout the universe, and so that's why I think some of these shapes look so alien and strange because it has done this to alien life across the universe. Yeah, that that could be that's a good theory because the final showdown, the final form of the thing, it, it has different types of beings sticking out of it. And yeah, we sh- we see like the the humanoid form, and then also even the dog form sticking yeah. out of it too. So, so I, I, yeah, that's why I think like there's that spider with the big eyes and in all sorts of different shapes because it could be like versions of aliens that his it has duplicated in the past. So the team learns of this horrific monstrous being inside the camp and. The state of paranoia kind of weighs over all of them as who could be infected by the thing. And the men on the station kind of, they begin to turn on each other. And the audience doesn't even know either. There's this little thing that um, Dina Cundy, the cinematographer of the the film, did. It's kind of similar to Blade Runner where Cundy puts a little beam of light, reflected light, in the eyes of characters 
who are human and he doesn't in those who aren't human. And if you go through the entire film, it pretty much holds up very much until the very last scene of the film. Wow, I got to look at that. Which is actually kind of also in dispute however you want to interpret the, the final film. But if you go by this beam of light, it's just like in Blade Runner again where the replicants have that glow in their eyes. Same thing except it's humans who have the glow in their eyes in this film. What do you think about the ending? Do you think that... So th- the film ends where... Um, it's Childs and McCready. McCready. They, they're the last two alive and they're sitting in that burnt down room. And they're both suspicious of each other of being the thing. What do you think? Do you think they're both human? Do you think they're both... One of them is the thing? What do you think? I, I like to go by the eye theory with the light. And I think that McCready's the human one and Childs is not human anymore and Childs is the thing. Um, I think there are a lot of different theories about it, especially when McCready goes to drink that, that beer or that, I mean, that, that liquor, but really is it gasoline? And maybe he was about to just end his life and poison himself with the gasoline, but then Childs shows up. So he gives Childs the, the, the bottle and Childs sips it uh, acting like it's, it's liquor but that leads McCready to do that little chuckle, which to me shows you like McCready's like that guy's the thing. I'm the only human left, but I'm gonna die anyways, so it doesn't really matter anymore. I agree with you that I think Childs is the thing, but I disagree with the liquor thing because in the shot with the Molotov cocktails, none of them have labels on them. Those bottles, they have nothing on them, and then the bottle that he's about to drink from at the end has a label on it. So I don't think it's a Molotov cocktail label uh, bottle with uh, gasoline in it. I think it's a, an actual liquor bottle. But I think if you look at it in the scene, they're outside and it's freezing cold. And obviously when you're in the freezing cold, your breath is visible. In the scene, you don't see any breath coming out of a child's mouth or nose. With Russell, there's he's constantly breathing out and you can see his breaths. But with, but with, um, with Childs, there's no breathing. So I think that he's the thing because he's not breathing. Either way, we uh, both agree that Childs is the thing. Yeah. And McCready is alive and a human. Yeah. But they're both going to die anyways. But back to the paranoia of everybody at the station. One of the best scenes in the film is when they decide to do a blood test to see who has the thing's DNA in it and who is a thing. And this is great because they have to take new samples because the blood samples that they already had had been destroyed and contaminated by whoever the thing was. They conduct a new blood test with these little Petri dishes and um, McCready uses a heated coil to interact with each blood sample to see which blood has the thing's blood in it and the DNA in it. And because of how it reacted with the fire. Because of how it reacted earlier with the fire. And so then we have this iconic scene where one of the blood samples reacts to the hot coil. And then the guy whose blood that was turns into the thing. <laughs> it's just and, like... Ugh. And then he eats the other guy. Oh, my lifts him God. him up with his head. And Kurt Russell is great in this... Hair God and beard God. He's, he, it took time. Him, it took him a year to grow the hair and beard. I think Kurt Russell might have the best hair in cinema history. He's up there. Yeah, he's got great hair. Oh, Timothy Chalamet's hair is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think this is a, a definitive Kurt Russell role. And... He loved working on this movie so much that he ended up doing Escape from New York with John Carpenter as well. And he's great as McCready. Um, and he he's like a, a, a tough guy, everyman, relatable hero. And he plays it perfectly. But then, yeah, this film takes a turn 
towards paranoia and no one trusts one another. Part of what makes this movie terrifying is that these guys are alone. They're isolated. There's nobody within thousands of miles. They're in the middle of Antarctica. It's kind of like The Shining, The Overlook. Yeah, there's no way to help. They can't get help from anyone, so they're on their own with this monstrous alien, and that's what makes this so terrifying. And also, the music in this movie is fantastic. This is the first of John Carpenter's films, which he didn't actually score himself. He does a lot of his own movies, like he does the Halloween theme and everything. And he um, passed the duties on to um, the incredibly talented Ennio Morricone, who passed away recently. And this score was also used, a lot of it, in some unused portions in Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight. And ironically, it got massive criticism, the score for this film. It even won a Razzie, and even though the Hateful Eight score is nominated for an Oscar. So it just tells you the time. And why, one of the reasons why I, I really don't like film critics because they don't understand what films are trying to do when they're coming out, like if they're ahead of their time. Like the thing was very much ahead of its time, even musically, apparently. And this movie bombed the box office, and it pretty much affected a lot of uh, future endeavors and in, in what projects John Carpenter could do because for a little while he was not getting a lot of work because this movie performed so poorly at the box office and it was destroyed by critics, absolutely destroyed. Yeah, Carpenter had always done his movies as independent productions and The Thing was his first studio picture. First time he got a big budget and I think there was maybe $14 million budget for this movie. Yeah, and like Halloween was like 375000 Yeah, and so... A studio had invested a lot of money into him, and since this movie failed, I think that the reason why John Carpenter's career never really took off was because of this movie's failure at the box office. And ironically, it's his most popular movie, probably, yeah. besides Halloween. Um, it's the biggest cult classic he's ever made. Yeah. Uh, it's probably his best movie. I think it's absolutely his best movie. And what I find so curious about this movie is you never, ever see the actual natural state of the thing like what does it actually look like in its natural state i wonder and it's so cool because you never he purposely never shows you that it's always something that's mimicking something else yeah this movie reminds me a lot of invasion of the body snatchers it's mm -hmm. pretty similar obviously we see the the original form of those creatures unlike what you just said with the thing where we don't really know its original form or if it ever had one or what it's become. But I really like these like shape-shifting movies, these aliens taking over human bodies, because, again, you're always just constantly dealing with the mystery of who's human, who's not human, who's evil, who's the monster, who's going to do it. Is everyone at the end of the movie a monster? Is everyone at the end of the movie human? Who knows? Yeah, it's like a virus spreading across humanity. This is an, an iconic film for horror, for gore, for special effects. And I think it's a, honestly, I think it's a perfect movie. There isn't an ounce of fat on it. There's not a moment of this movie that I don't like. I think that Carpenter made an absolute horror masterpiece. Yeah, you got to go into this to have fun with a horror, cheesy horror special effects movie. Same thing with The Evil Dead. It's not going to look perfect. You got to have fun. Yeah. Like when that guy's arms get eaten by the stomach of the thing and his, it bites his hands off. It doesn't look that real, but holy shit, you'll still shit your pants. It's crazy. That wraps our classic horror episode 29 of Rares of the Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to YouTube.
follow us on wherever you're listening to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, wherever you can find and listen to podcasts. You'll find us. Support us on Patreon. Use our Manscaped code Raiders of the Lost for 20% off and free shipping on your order today. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. See you soon.